You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm talking to Susie Ruffle. We are both currently at the Edinburgh Festival and her show absolutely knocked me out this year. Susie is someone who I think that, uh, we, as we talk about it in this interview, she didn't have the kind of killer debut year or years that a lot of people have, but she has been quietly putting the work in year on year, getting very, very good, and I confidently expect this to be something of a breakthrough year for her. Um, by which I don't necessarily mean awards or any of those things. I just feel like, I mean, her show just blew me away. You will hear permeated throughout this interview just how excited I am about for how far she's come and how on top of the world she is at the moment. So if you are at the Edinburgh Festival, please make the effort to see Susie Ruffles' show. Um, She is at the Pleasance Courtyard at some time or other. Look on your Fringe app or on Google or something else. So without further ado, and I'll chat to you obviously in the middle. Oh, sorry, here's some further ado. Tiny bit. If you're in the Insiders Club, we've got some really interesting stuff about uh, Susie's work as a tour support for Kevin Bridges, Romish Ranganathan, uh, Tom Allen and Josh Widdicombe. So there's the do's and don'ts of uh, tour support coming up if you're in the Insiders Club, as well as some interesting thoughts on working with directors and uh, how Marcus Brigstock gave her the best piece of advice that she's ever been given. Uh, so loads of fun stuff there at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for long-term supporters of the show. And if you're new to this podcast, it's a sort of Patreon-style thing where you get access to a, a private podcast with extra material from every episode that has extra stuff. Enough of that. This is Susie Ruffle. Were you an actor for any length of time? I did a bit of acting, but I was always sort of the funny part. And I casting me was always quite difficult because I was never... I was never, like, naturally the romantic lead. Therefore, you play, like, the funny roles, and that's often to girls that are a bit older. So I was sort of this younger actress that didn't really ha- couldn't really find a space. Ah. And then that's when I started writing bits myself and then stand-up. How and funny. Then, and then flash forward, 11 years later, here we are. Yeah. Edinburgh, in yeah. In a very nice flat that you're renting. It's absolutely gorgeous, and it feels very... I feel... This is the first uh, place I've been able to record at home in my Edinburgh accommodation because it's nice enough. Very, uh, to paint very the picture nice. for the reader, we're sitting on piles of money, Scrooge McDuck style. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's pretty good. So let's let's uh, we'll 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 bounce around the timeline, but let's sure. talk about your show the other night, which I had tears in my eyes watching it. 
and joy. It was like a joyous thing, right? Yeah. Do you mean like you bounced on stage like Janelle Monet? (laughs) I'll take that. And just gave us a show with physicality and wit and verve and big, big punchy bits. And by the time you get onto that routine, which, you know, the spotlight routine, which Mm -hmm. we'll talk about later on, um, I just felt like I'm watching someone's breakthrough show. That's a nice thing of you to say. Um, I really love doing the show. I really enjoy performing it. I think it's my best. Um, it's um, it's a show that I've written quicker than any other. Go on. So my tour. So I've I've done. I did a tour a couple of years ago that was like um, I don't know, like ten dates. And then last year I did about 25. I say last year. It finished in May. Sure, yeah, now yeah. Now at the end, the, the, the festival started on the 31st of July. So it was the 24th of May. Actually, that's not... I did one show of it one last time on the 14th of July, my old show. So I've been writing a show whilst touring another show, which has been a real challenge, but quite... It's helped me turn over material really, really quickly because I think when you're on stage all the time, you're more creative. Definitely. So because I was doing an hour twice a week at my tour shows to an audience that are really excited to see me. I was way more confident trying new bits in the first half of the show or when I was opening for somebody else that week because I was so used to being on stage in front of a good crowd. Um, But, yeah, I'm really proud of the show and um, I'm really enjoying it every night and I really hope that that continues. I'm sort of waiting for that tough show because it hasn't happened yet and I know at some point it will. Um, last night, a weird thing happened, though. My my venue started leaking onto the stage, which created a, je ne sais quoi, <laughs> a real fucking pain in the ass. Um, yeah. Which was a bit annoying. But um, I've taken that in my stride because as people uh, listening to this will may or may not know, the Edinburgh Festival venues are often cobbled together out sure. of... A lot of them are like old schools or university buildings yeah. and some of them are kind of hand-built and finished yeah, so the I've day before. Yeah, so I've got like a then. big porter cabin that I'm paying a lot of money for that now has a leak. So yeah. I'm winning in many respects. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's... Um, yeah, who knows? I think that it's uh, a show that I'm enjoying doing. People, people are coming. People seem to be having a nice time. What more can you want? Uh, other than everything. Other, other than, than everything. Well, this is, I was going to say, you're speaking now, and I realise it's early in the morning, you're speaking in a very sort of humble and nice kind of... Well, yeah, I mean, because what I really want is like a Netflix special and a series and that's all the what other we, things. That's what we're going to talk about, because you're the, the Susie on stage, mm. which I know is... How much, what, is, what is the difference? What's the distance between... It's not that... You? Yeah, it's not that much. No. Yeah, that's a great Frank Skinner book, which I'm sure we've both read, where he talks about when he comes off stage, you turn down certain parts of yourself. Sure. And you go on, you turn up certain parts of yourself, turn down other parts of yourself. Um, the I think the reason this show is um, doing well, and I am enjoying it, is because it's the closest I've ever been to myself on stage. So this is my sixth solo hour. My first two... Um, I was doing an impression of what I thought a comedian was. So I spent a lot of time with some of the uh, sort of, during that period, actually, even still now, I spent a lot of time with very talented male comics like Josh Whittacombe, Ramesh, Sean Walsh, um, and a, a number of others as well. And I think my first two shows was me doing an impression of what I thought stand-up was. So I had a bit that was a bit like Josh, that was a bit observational, which isn't really what I do. I had a bit some bigger act-out bits like Sean, which is actually what I do do and what I do enjoy doing. Had, you know, and so I had all these, 
I was trying very hard to work out what kind of comic I was being on stage. And I did that sort of quite visibly twice at the Edinburgh Festival, which... <laughs> that's, that's very deftly put. I very visibly tried to work out what I was yeah, doing and in it the was, spotlight. I had, yeah, I had two shows that were completely fine. Wouldn't have upset anyone. Would have made you laugh a bit. Wouldn't have been your favourite show of the festival. Totally fine. And then I had a little break from Edinburgh. Um, and I briefly wondered whether I would stop doing comedy because I found it, because it's really hard when you start. And um, I, yeah, I wasn't sure whether I would carry on doing it. And I found, I came back from the Edinburgh Festival in, what must it have been, 2014? And was like, I don't think, I think I'm fine. And I don't think I want to be fine as a stand-up. And so I think that this might have been those five years I had to go at comedy and then I'll go back to acting or try writing or do something else. And I went to my agent, who is uh, the fantastic flow off the curb, and I said, and I said, I think I might give up. And then I, I cried in a Whole Foods, um, which is, I mean, a, a very middle class thing to do. For someone <laughs> is, for I cried is, in a Whole Foods because my stand up career wasn't working. Yeah, out. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for someone who's comes from a very working class family, that's, um, I mean sounds very arrogant let's be honest and she said to me oh I think you should give it a few more months give it a few more months like you know honor the gigs that you've got in I think you've got something carry on carry on carry on and then <clears throat> I was still considering giving up and um she rang me and said you, you still like you know how's it going you still and I was like mm. she was like what about if I told you you could support Alan Carr for the next six months on his warm-up tour and I said okay and then being on tour with Alan his audience are very similar to mine. Mm. I had six months. Not It wasn't every single night. There was probably 25 shows, 30 shows in total over the six months. But I had, I ripped every gig because I found an audience that if you love Alan, there's a really good chance you might like what I do. And I completely... Whilst at the same time it being a very different flavour to what Alan does, exactly. it's the right audience. Yes, exactly. Yes. And um, over those six months, I completely fell in love with comedy in a way that I hadn't those first two years of trying to be a stand-up, trying to unlock what this puzzle is that makes people... I was, Whereas then I just started just loving being on stage every night and working with Alan because he is... He was the comedian I loved before I was a comic. So his Tooth Fairy DVD, when I lived in my student flat, when I was at drama school, we, um, we would put on Tooth Fairy before we went out. It's a really weird thing. It's really strange that I now do stand-up. We often have it on in the background. Like, we wouldn't put on music. It's a strange thing. Not always. I'm not saying, like, that's what we always did. But I remember there was quite often, we'd be like, oh, should we watch a bit of that DVD again before we go out? It's so funny. So we'd just watch different bits of it. And so Alan knows all of this now. But he was that comic for me who I loved. And then I was genuinely thinking, I don't think I'm good enough at stand-up. I think I'll stop. And then just, you know very good agenting from Flo and lovely opportunity that Alan was about to go out on the road and he didn't have a lot of material and he wanted to do 150 seaters in North Wales and, uh, you know, really far away from any big city so he could go and work out what he wanted to talk about. And I was very available and very, very keen. And I just completely fell in love with stand-up in a way that I never had before. What's the kind of ratio of stuff that's funny to stuff that's meaningful in a in a typical hour in this hour or, or the sorts of hours uh, you like to write is it just 
chunky bit, 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 bit. I'd say 50 minutes of funny, five minutes of thoughtful. Because I think that, and I don't think that's the same for everybody. I think that's the kind of stand-up shows that I like writing. Um, but I also think I... Um, I think there's always something with being someone that is openly gay on stage, um, talking about what my life looks like as a gay person and talking about, like this year I'm talking about getting married and potentially starting a family. Um, For me, it's very important that, um, that I say, that there's a moment where I sort of go, by the way, this is different for me. So the show at the festival is playing really, really well and people are really enjoying it and people are coming up to me afterwards and saying lovely things and saying that, you know, the bits about... I've got a routine about carrying a backpack of shame because I was gay and I feel like I've always had it all my life. It's a very small moment in the show. It's actually a throwaway line that's then a callback later on. But it's important that I say it because I know there'll be people in the audience that that really means something to. And the straight people in the audience, it's so quick that they won't even notice it. But at the Edinburgh Festival, that'll play great. I know that when I go and play the Darwin Theatre in Blackburn and the majority of the audience will still be straight, but there'll be people that have driven for two hours to see me, that will be... It's important that I have that moment where people that are like me feel seen and feel heard and feel like our stories are being told. So there was a lady the other night that came up to me after the show and a moment in the show, and I mean like... A moment uh, I talk about um, the LGBT inclusion in schools and then the fact that Alice and I decided we wanted to start a family just before that came out in the press and that it made us worry. Well, it wasn't us, actually. It was me. She's very chill. But it made me worry that I... Can I, can I be a mum? Are my kids going to get bullied? Are they going to get bullied because of me? What, what does that all mean? And do I want to, am I going to be putting a child through something if I'm their mum? And um, a lady waited for me afterwards the other night and she was maybe in her 60s and she said, I I came out when my son was 10 and um, things have always been fine. He's never been bullied. He's an incredible man. He loves me and my partner. We've got wonderful grandchildren. Do it, do it. And then she said to me, like, you know, thank you for talking about our stories on stage, we never get our stories. We never get our stories and stuff because often when there's a gay person in things, there will be a punchline or a friend or they'll be like the comical gay guy or like the slightly butch lesbian who says silly things. And it's rarely... Or it'll be a woman that's gay that has a fling with a man, which is, you know, which happens, which is totally fine. You know, the every letter in the LGBTQ plus uh, means something and is important. But I find that... As someone that's just, I'm just a gay lady that just, uh, I find that our stories are rarely told. And so I feel like if I make you laugh for 50 minutes, nonstop, punching you with gags, I totally deserve that moment where I go, please see me, please see me and see people like me and know that we're normal. And now, even just talking about representation, Mm. do you feel like there is a sense amongst kind of right-thinking, nice people that, hey, we're, we're, you know, everyone sees gay people now. Yeah. And we still have miles and miles and miles to go. I think we, I think that, you know, most people in our little bubble, like, you know, I don't need to, 
you know, I don't get any shit in my bubble. I don't get any, you know, no one's, uh, I'm not getting any homophobia from the artistic London or Edinburgh bubble. Um, but, you know, I still experience homophobia on a routine basis. I'll get shit every time I'm on TV. Um, people genuinely think that people like me shouldn't have children. Um, it's There's 72 countries across the world where homosexuality is still illegal. There's 11 countries where it's still punishable by death. And I say that on, and I said that on stage in my last three shows because it's really important that people hear that. And it's the only thing I've ever repeated at the festival. But just because I don't think that people... Like Alice and I going on our honeymoon. I've got a funny little gag about it. But it's an important thing to consider, which is we have to... We want to go somewhere hot, but we don't want it to be illegal to be gay there. And straight people never have to consider that. They never have to go, oh, God, I'd love to go to Barbados. Oh, no, we better not. Because there'd be a really awkward moment when we're checking in and then we'd probably just have to pretend that we're friends. So we'd probably have separate beds. Probably don't want separate beds on our honeymoon. And it's important to me that an audience hear that. And it's it's funny. It's a really funny gag. Mm -hmm. But it's important that they hear it. There There are lovely moments throughout your show where you can... Uh, you can kind of an audience member can kind of identify the gay pockets in the show by reactions. There was the night I saw yeah. you. There was that one guy that hooted at a joke that. Yeah. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's not that no one else got it. Was just a turn of phrase. Yeah. That that, that you you were like clocked it and he felt seen. Yeah, do you know what I mean? And yeah. that was that was and really it, beautiful. And I'll get that every night in a different little way, and even more so on the tour. Even more so on the tour. On the tour, it will be. It, it's a weird thing in that like people. I'm not a famous person, but there'll be people every night that wait for me to because there's, there's so few gay women that are on television at all. You know, I'm not on it much, but so few gay women that are on television at all. It's, I'm, um, and I think because of the podcast that I've got with Tom Allen as well, um, I think feeling like you're seen is such an important thing. And, you know, it's representation of cross you know, not obviously just gay people, but, you know, people of colour, people from different parts of the world, people with different cultures, different religions, you know, people want to feel seen. And I think that, and I guess with my shows is that it's 100% stand-up. It's not theatre. It's not those shows that are sort of uh, like a a call to arms. You know, it's funny stand-up, but it's for everyone. And then there, it, there might be a little special moment for someone that's mm. just come out or someone, a lot of people, a lot of gay people come to, young gay people come to see my shows with their parents. Mm-hmm. I get that a lot. Parents waiting for me with their teenage daughter that's just come out or teenage son that's just come out. And there's a special moment for them, I hope. I hope, which is lovely, which is how I've managed to find my crowd. Even though when I'm on tour, the majority of the audience is still straight, which is great because I want to be be able to appeal to everyone. There's a throwaway line in the show about Sue Perkins. Yes. In a kind of waiting for her to die kind of way. I'm not waiting for her to die, I'm waiting for her to retire. Waiting I'm for a big her to retire, apologies. <laughs> Huge fan of Sue. No, there's no one suggested you're hoping for that. No, absolutely But not. waiting for her to retire, do you feel like, how much truth is there in your apprehension of the, the places available at the table? Oh, I mean, it's certainly a joke. Um, I think that there's, I think there's enough room at the table. Um, but 
you know, you do sort of go... Like, for a long time, the only gay women on TV were Sue Perkins, Sandy Toxic and Claire Balding, and that was it. And they were the same women when I was coming out, which was when I was 20, which is 13 years ago. It's the same women that are on television. There's not really anyone that you can be like, they're on TV all the time and they're gay. Like... There's, there's not. And I don't think that I've got to, like, muscle in for my seat at the table, but it is, it's a, you mean, it's a, it's, it's a throwaway line about the lack of gay women, I think. I think that's what the gag is. I mean, I just improvised it on the first night of the show. I didn't do it before. <laughs> I did it uh, on, like, literally a week ago, I improvised it. And I was like, that's funny, that's staying in. And do you, like, there doesn't seem, in those three women that you've mentioned, none of, none of them make an issue of their gayness there is no is there an equivalent of camp in lesbian oh in the fact that they're quite desexualized yes um yeah maybe. i don't i, I mean, don't know if i would say they would desexualized well i think that's sometimes a but thing is that with part camp. of it well think? i think that's sometimes a thing with camp uh in that it's um not always of course but there is this notion of old-fashioned camp culture which is like it's nothing to do with sex it's all to do with like uh, being a bit of a fop or sure. being a bit over the top or being sort of a character. Um, and I'm not saying that camp guys are that at all. Um, but um, I think there's an element of it that a lot of gay men that were very, that have been very sort of, okay, like Dale Winton or Julian Clary, not, he was always quite sexual. <laughs> but um, gay men that are on television would often be, sort of desexualized because it's more appealing to a straight audience. Mm. If it's just, you know, you don't have to think about them having a partner. Yeah. Um, or what they do when the doors are shut. Um, and I guess there's some of that with, um, with those women. But, I mean, the, the, the sort of thing is that, like, you know, they're all very clever. They're the clever, clever middle-class lesbians that you'd have around for dinner. That's They're acceptable somehow. Exactly. It's the acceptable face of lesbianism. And um, I don't know if I'm unacceptable, but um, I, it's quite important for me that I don't talk about sex that much, but that I'm not in that, um, you're not necessarily to say that they are, but I'm, <clears throat> my sexuality is part of me. Not a massive part, it's just who I go to bed with. You know, but it's, um, yeah, I guess that I've sort of made a decision that I didn't want to be sort of a desexualized version of that. You Something I really, something that really appealed to me about your show is that you, and the fact it appealed to me was kind of to do more with the maturity maybe of your writing. There was no moment where you did a kind of like an introductory I'm gay joke. No. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. that felt like a decision on your part that felt mature and not to suggest anyone doing the equivalent is immature, mm. but there's often uh, a kind of setup of the character with a gay person. Yeah. The, the, you know, Which I've had for years. You know, I'm, you know, I don't know if I need to come out, my hair gives it away or whatever. Yeah. I've or, had those games. So, uh, you know, so my girlfriend, sorry boys, or what, you know, those kind All of those games. things, yeah. And the decision this time was not to have one of them. Yeah. So talk to me about that decision. I don't know. I just feel like I've done a lot of coming out jokes. And if, I mean, like, I'm like, catch up. <laughs> catch up. Um, but I guess also, um, you know, I've been out on television a lot 
you know, whenever I'm on, you know, I'll, I'll often do a gag about being gay, mm-hmm. you know, and in like a panel show situation, it's quite an easy way to get a laugh. Sure. Um, but yeah, it was a sort of decision not to do it. And I don't know exactly where it comes from, but I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to come out in this year's show. I'm just going to be. I just, I... I think that really resonated. It, right. It's like the absence of that joke. Oh, right. See, felt. I hadn't even considered that. Yeah, nice. I, I don't know. I don't know quite what I mean. I think the absence of that joke was felt somehow. Right. You know, part of when I kind of came away thinking, like, I, like I've always enjoyed your work, and I came away thinking, fucking hell, Ruffles got really good. Oh, and that's part nice. of that is a maturity, and part of that is a kind of definiteness in the way that you're if you're playing chess you're putting the pieces down like that do you know what I mean that, <laughs> yeah. that's that's how that that show felt well that's the thing I think that I mean one of the 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 most important thing with stand-up is that you're enjoying your show and I think with this one I really enjoy it I really it's exactly what I like doing and that and I think there's a confidence within that whereas like this year you know, it's so hard at the festival because you're constantly being reviewed, which I absolutely hate. Um, I hate seeing people at the end of every big routine looking down with a notepad. Um, and I know it's something that, you know, sort of people, you know, it happens because it happens. But I do... Note to the reviewing community, find a different way to make <laughs> notes. Somehow. God knows how. Don't be visible making it's notes. So, well, but like, and, you PSA know, and, and there's... Um, yeah, and there's a lot of reviewers that I really like and respect who have, you know, really supported me. Um, but I do hate being reviewed, of, of course. course. Um, at, but with this show, I'm like, basically, if you like what I do, you'll like this show. I think this is me doing what I do best. If you don't like what I do, this will not change your mind. This is the comedian that I want to be. And if you don't like it, that's totally fine. I found an audience that do. And the response from the audience every night and the people coming up to me afterwards has confirmed that. That I'm like, this is... I think critics will like the show, but the audience that come and see me will love this show. And that's what it, that's what's most important. A joy, a joy to be talking to Susie in the palatial environment of uh, the Edinburgh flat we're staying in this year, in which I've genuinely, for the first time, I feel like I've got my money's worth after 25 years of being bent over. I mean, this is expensive, but for once, it was worth the money. Um, You can probably hear how richly carpeted the room is in the sound quality of the episode. Loads more stuff coming up uh, with Susie. We're going to talk about uh, her show and we're going to talk about passive homophobia and her origins as a prototypical class clown. Um, But before we get on to that, just a quick reminder, my show Primer, my work in progress, is happening every day here at the festival at Monkey Barrel. It's been selling out. I'm currently on a little two-day mini break back with my family and uh, loads of fun I'm having too. It's an insane thing to be halfway through the festival and just at home doing childcare and I'm driving to the tip. I'm doing a tip run tomorrow morning. I'm going to throw some things away like a dad. Um, so uh, we, but last the last show I did was Monday and that sold out. So that speaks well of the rest of the run. Uh, if you haven't yet got your tickets for Primer, they're only a fiver or you can take a risk and pay what you want and just turn up. Um, but it sort of feels like it's selling quite well. And holy God, I will do a long post about you after the festival about how much I'm enjoying it and the sort of 
the Aristotelian tragic elements of the fact that I've easily created, I think, my best show. I'm creating my best work in the year in which I've done no press, no PR. I haven't filled in a single, here's my five tips for Edinburgh sort of thing. Um, And I have worked, I suppose, less hard on it, less frequently on it. I just feel like I've had a year off and all this stuff's been cooking away and now it's all... Yeah, let's say spewing, spewing out of me. I'm having a whale of a time. And thank you for all the very uh, kind uh, podcast fans who come along to the show and said such lovely things about it. It's, um, it is frustrating. <laughs> it's frustrating, but crushingly inevitable that the point at which you sort of stop caring becomes the point at which all the great stuff comes. So anyway, uh, do come and see Primer and do get onto the comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you'd like to join the Insiders Club with a, a small monthly donation of an amount that is up to you. And thank you everyone that's been joining recently. We've had loads of people get on board during the festival. Um, and you can hear Susie Ruffle talking about tour support, working with directors and plenty more besides that hasn't made it to this main edit. Now I've got... Oh, mate, I've got some some great gear in the can. Coming up over the next few weeks and months, we have a live episode with Jos Norris, which was glorious. Do see Mr. Fruit Salad, his uh, comic character, his tissue-thin comic character uh, here at Edinburgh, if you are here and so inclined. Highly recommend that. Uh, We've also got an absolute... Just a solid gold belter of an episode with Rob Orton, who is fast becoming one of my favourite comics. Um, Fast becoming, for Christ's sake, who do I think I am? (laughs) What I mean is, I've seen him three times recently, and he was increasingly good every time, and I can't wait for you to hear that episode. He is something very, very special. Um, And, uh, I mean, who else have we got? Sarah Barron, that one's not got out yet. The Cagouls, that was a belter. We've got some great stuff and loads of people in the can. In fact, I might even spill the beans to the Facebook group who I've got booked in the diary. So if you'd like to join the Comedians Comedian podcast group on Facebook, you will have the chance to pitch some questions that you think I should ask those people. But I'm not even going to tell you who they are unless you're in the group. So do join up. Now, let's get back to Susie Ruffle. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So let's talk about the writing, like day one of the writing process. Is there ever a day one or is it always that you are cycling in new stuff into an existing support or new material slot? Yeah, I'm always, I don't really, I don't type it up. I don't sit down and um, I'll do like a spider diagram of like all different ideas. What's the funniest things out of those? Um, I'll improvise a bit. There'll be something that happens. And what often happens is there'll be a line that... So one of the early gags in the show is that my mum has a catchphrase. And her catchphrase is, oh, you look tired. <laughs> and I... The the idea of my mum having a catchphrase, I thought was really funny. And then I just tried three different versions of what a catchphrase could be. Tired, got the biggest laugh. That was it. Yeah. Tired's written down. 
And so... And is that you tried three versions, all of which were true, yes. about things your mum yeah. says. Right, they're not so just... So like, you look just tired, inventing. you're too thin. Um, you're too tired, you're too thin, and... Um, your hair is very short. <laughs> but you're tired gets the most. Sure. So, you're tired's in. Um, but I think that... So, I think I was... I'm very much... I think there are two camps of comedy... And it's performers that learn to write or writers that learn to perform. And I'm definitely a performer that learned to write. I think that was the thing with those two early shows that I mentioned earlier. The act-outs were very good. That would be what everyone would say. The act-outs were very good. The accents were good. The taking on different characters, doing that sort of thing. I could always do that. It took me a little while to get good at writing. And I think that's because of a range of reasons. One of them being I have severe dyslexia and I never thought that writing was for me because I didn't think that I was good enough at it. So actually, in the first sort of four or five years of me doing stand-up, the idea of sitting down with a pen and paper was terrifying because I'd never written anything since my GCSEs. Because I went to drama school, I did a vocational course. I didn't do A-levels, I did a vocational course because I hate writing. And now I'm a writer, which is very strange. But I didn't think that I could. I hadn't like sort of given myself the permission to think of myself as a writer so it was just always me improvising bits and then making notes of the improvisation rather than improvising bits, then sitting down and writing a better version of that improvised bit. And so I think what happened a lot for a long time is that I made the same mistakes over and over again, but didn't, hadn't worked out how I could change it. And so now writing is something that I really enjoy doing. And so this year shows about me being happy. And so the first thing that I did was make a list of all the things that made me happy and then thought, do everything comes from truth. There's not one thing in the show that's a lie. There's, I mean, the ending bits are lies, the punchlines are lies, you know, the, 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 the way in which I stretch out the story and give you colour that wasn't really there, that's all the creativity of writing. But everything in the show is true. The fact that it's called Dance Like Everyone's Watching, it's completely true that my mum misread a sign that said Dance Like Nobody's Watching. We were in Wilkinson's, she misread it. We're all dyslexic. It was hilarious. I wrote it down. And, yeah, every how I then play with the truth is where all the laughs come. But I'll write down, okay, what's made me happy this year? This, that, the other. My girlfriend, buying a little flat. Um, my career. Um, all these silly little things. And then go, what's the funniest things that are true that's happened in all these little scenarios, in these little worlds of my life, my world of my relationship? What's the funny things that have happened in the last year that Alice and I have experienced? What part of it can I make funny on stage? And um, that's how the whole show's written. The, real, the show will never be typed up. It's an absolute bugger when I have to do bits for TV and they're like, could you send across the script? And I'm like, I don't have the script. <laughs> um, and then what I usually do is I record the show and then pay someone to type it up for me because I'm, uh, it would just be easier. I found the website Fiverr is oh, amazing really? for that. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, Good yeah. to know. <laughs> um, but the entirety of the show, I put, I put a picture of this on Instagram a little while ago on like my stories bit. The whole of the show is four lines of words and each word is probably about a four-minute bit. And that's it. That's as written 
four lines of words. How do you mean? Do you want, I'm going to show you. And then you can maybe do a better explaining. <laughs> do a better explaining. Do a better explaining, please, Stu. Um, <laughs> oh, OK, well, this is a slightly longer version, but basically that's as written as the show will ever be. Oh, yeah, lovely. So it's just like flat, moving, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we've got here is sort of 25 lines, each of which has got between two and six words on it separated by little slashes, little dashes or forwards. What's the difference between a dash and a forward slash? I use exactly this technique. Uh, Dash is no idea, forward slash is following on. Great, love it. I do exactly the same, that's hilarious. And this is literally the back of a postcard, I see, which is quite sweet. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the postcard has a quality written on it, which is what I'd take on stage and put down. (laughs) And some people would notice it and some people wouldn't. Great. Um, So that's, you know, I remember Stephen Grant, the comedian... Um, messaging me and saying, "Oh my god!" It, it, like I put it, I put something, I put like, "Oh, going back to Edinburgh, or whatever," and then a picture of like papers all over my floor. And he said, "Do you only ever handwrite it out? Do you not word process it?" I was like, "No, it doesn't. That doesn't feel creative to me. Tapping. Mm-hmm. It feels creative to write with my like hands. That's how I write." And um, so I think that that's a little bit different to other people but I think it's about there's a thing isn't there like when you start out stand up it's like you have to do it like this and you have to do it like that and you've got to think that Stuart Lee's the best you just have to that's the rules you we have to we all have to think that Stuart Lee's the best and we all have to um write like this and do that and and I just it I think that's why it's, it took me a little bit longer to find my voice for want of a better word um because None of those tools worked for me because I didn't go to university and I don't and I didn't I don't know how to sit down and write in front of a computer because I never had to write a dissertation and I only have four GCSEs so I never concentrated at school and so I had to find my own way of doing that which is I've bought a flat it was a funny thing that happened with an estate agent okay here's all the funny things that happened with the estate agent okay I'm going to top secret. I'm not being paid, so I can do what I want. Here's some funny things that happen with an estate agent. Record it, listen back to it, tick, 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 cross, cross, cross. There's the beginning of a routine. It's interesting to me that you attribute that discovery of your voice in part to, like, the fact it took me a long time. It's because I'm dyslexic. It's because I never had the university thing. Whereas I would say the reality is you have taken an absolutely average amount of time yeah. to find your voice. It's just that the people with whom you're knocking around are, if they're Kevin Josh Bridges, and Ramesh and jo- Josh, <laughs> those are all the people who found their voices the fastest out of everyone. Yeah. You know, and this, they're also excellent comedians. Yeah. But one of the things that defines all of those people, Kevin, I did So You Think You're Funny with Kevin. Yeah. And I remember at the time, everyone was going like, has he been doing this for 40 years? Yeah, you know, he, he was like, like 20. Yeah, he was 18. I oh think he was 18, God. yeah. Um, because those people found their voices incredibly quickly yeah. and just had that kind of, you know. Yeah. So that that's almost one of the disadvantages of the useful slipstream of supporting yeah. excellent comics and learning yeah. from them. One of the disadvantages, perhaps, is that you put yourself or you kind of, and I'm sure we all do come up with yeah. reasons why I always think, God, if I hadn't pissed around on the street, taking risks, challenging myself, having a wonderful time and enjoying all the art around me, but my preconception is like, oh, I could have, 
Yeah. I, could, I was grinding out shows when I could have been learning. You know, I think everyone yeah. carries around. Yeah, of course. Uh, if not a backpack, and if not shame, yeah, yeah. maybe it's, you know, a, a pocket watch of, no, oh, this is, oh, I, yeah, I did taking, it wrong like yeah, this. Yeah. You know? I mean, Kevin is the, out of the people that, I, I only done a little bit of support for Kevin, um, but they were the harder shows because he is, uh, like, he's got such a specific audience. Sure. That absolutely love him. Yeah. But where when I've been doing support for other people, they've been like, oh, okay, something else. Sure. <laughs> but with Kevin, it's like, fuck off. You're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I like come off after being like, oh, that was tough. And then watch him completely annihilate it and be phenomenal. And then go home and go, uh, I need to work harder. I'm not sure what this is. But yeah, maybe it is. It has taken me a normal amount of time. I think that, you know, it's difficult sometimes when you're someone that's not been like in that category of like having a first Edinburgh that's amazing where you've like got all four stars, a couple of three, sure, you might have been like on the long list for the nominations or been nominated for newcomer. That's like, it does feel like if you don't start out in stand-up like that, then you've not had a good start. But actually, you know, the year that I was not nominated, um, you know, there are people now that don't even do stand-up or aren't even or certainly don't do the same sort of things as I do now. And I'm sure they're doing their own thing, which is brilliant. But I can't even exactly remember who all of them were because they're, they're doing different things and they're not necessarily stand-ups anymore. The ecosystem of being a new act is extraordinarily punishing mm. mentally. I don't think I could do it again. I look now and I go, I don't know how I carried on doing stand-up when I was like, I was mediocre for, I think lots of us are, mediocre for quite a long time when I because I'd only come out two years before I started doing stand-up so I'd only told people who I really was two years before so then I was telling audiences I still didn't even really know how to express who I was you know and so it's yeah I so I had like a, a I didn't I didn't know so I wasn't authentic on stage um and uh yeah, I guess that um, it, it sometimes feels like if you're not in that, oh, you're in the final of this competition and that competition, or you win a thing, or you're in this list of six names that come out of the Edinburgh Festival that is the deciding thing about who the new people are, it's really easy to feel like you failed. But you haven't. You're just doing what you're doing and you'll find out the best way of doing it. And that's brilliant. That that thing of like people often say, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, one of the reasons we all think it's a sprint is because we all start our marathon and 100 metres into the marathon, someone takes a picture and goes, there we go, those are the winners. Yes. God, that was clever, Goldsmith. That's exactly that what that is. is. Yeah. We, we do, we, it is a marathon, but everyone is fucking constantly pretending it's a sprint. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm pleased that it has taken me, like, so I did Live at the Apollo last year, which was like the highlight of my life. Maybe my life, no. But the highlight of my career, certainly. And it was a dreamy gig. A lot of people have said to me, oh, it's it can be tough. It can be quite a tough gig. The, the audience are lit. It's, <clears throat> you know, it can be sort of a funny setup. And lit, lit in the sense of you can see their faces because yeah, of Yeah, not like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the audience is lit. <laughs> lit. No, so, sorry, there's lighting on the audience so that cameras can have cutaway shots to people laughing. And... Um, you know, people have said to me, I'm sure I'll have a great, great gig, but just be aware, it can be tough. And I had probably one of my best gigs of last year 
at the, it, and it was it's serendipitous. You know, it's it, it, I was lucky that Kerry Goodleman was hosting, who's a really good friend of mine. Kerry was on and Felicity was on the early show because they shoot two in a night. And Kerry and Felicity are two of my really good friends. We got to hang out all day together. Made me a lot less nervous than I've been mm. sitting in the room by myself. Kerry ripped it. I know that if you like Kerry Godleyman, there's a good chance you're like me. We're not a million miles apart. And she started, had this incredible gig, was smashing it. And I got to slide straight into the slipstream because I wasn't doing anything different. Get You know, and um, yeah, I think that I wanted to do Apollo for three years before that and had been knocking on the door and they'd been coming to see me, but not booking me and being like, we like her, but not yet. And that was frustrating at the time. When I walked off stage at the Apollo, I was like, tonight was the night that I was meant to do it. It was meant to take this long. It was meant to be, you know, whereas some of my friends did the Apollo after four years of doing stand-up. I did it after nearly 11, but it was perfect. It was the best night and it was amazing. And um, and, and if you had told me when I started stand-up, this is, you know, it, you, you're going to be shit for a bit. I'd have been like, oh, no, I probably won't. <laughs> because it's so hard. <laughs> and you look back and go, oh, you, you know, the, the laughs that you get when you're new, they sort of fuel you for such a long time. Like when you first start ripping gigs or having really good shows, you'd be on a high for like two days. Now it's like 20 minutes and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's nice. You know, and so, and it's those things that you like cling on to. I remember when I was still temping and gigging, you know, and I'd be like joyful for the next two days doing photocopies after being like, I've got a new bit that worked in front of 10 people. Oh my God, I'm winning. Um, but similarly, as you say, if you had to go back and start again. Oh, it's so tough. It's so tough. And like, you know, there'll be people at the fringe that are having really hard years. And it's it's really... And when you're having a hard year, you don't have the perspective to see it as a hard year. You just think, I'm shit, this is shit. You also can't go, in six years, it'll be much better. Because you're like, six years? (laughs) (laughs) That's forever. But it's about, I guess, one thing that comedy's really taught me is um, about patience. And I have really enjoyed, you know, after those first couple of years, once I got on the road with Alan and I was really enjoying being a stand-up, I've had the best time. I've absolutely loved it. And I say on stage, I love my job. And it's absolutely true. Like, doing the telly's great. Doing the panel shows are fun. Did a little uh, travel log series earlier in the year called The Comedy Bus. We went to different people's hometowns. It was so fun. But there's nothing that I'm enjoying more than my hour on stage every night. When you were selecting your material for the Apollo, Mm. you probably had quite a lot to choose from. Yeah. So what kind of decisions did you make? I knew that I was going to do my routine about naked attraction because it was a routine that I improvised on stage and I never changed a word of. Oh, yeah. And so it was just a bit that felt... And I'd done it in all different situations. I'd done an opening for Catherine Ryan, you know, with her audience. I'd done an opening for Josh. I'd done it on my little tour. I'd done it at the Birmingham Glee. I'd done it at the London Store. It had worked everywhere. It I can't remember a time it didn't work. And I can't say that about all of my bits. And so um, I knew that was in. I knew I had to do a gag where I set myself up. I had to let them know I was gay. Um, in a way, you know, like we said, I don't do it in this show, but when you're doing it in front of that when many people. When you're saying hello to that many people. Exactly. Yeah. You know, for most people, that might have been the first time they've ever seen me on telly. So I need to go, just so you know, I know I'm gay. 
Like, that's sort of what you have to do. Um, this is a choice to look like this. It's not a choice to be gay, but to... to a, I know, is basically what I need to say at the top. Um, but, yeah, I think that I just used the bits that I thought were funniest and then s- stitched them together. And then I, I, I'm a big practiser. I did, like, it 15 times, the exact set 15 times around London. The exact set. Changing, like, one word here or there. Um, and, yeah, and then, then and that was, yeah, that was it. I was just... And then you send across your script and they okay it. And so I did that and they okayed it. I was like, okay, this is it. This is this is the routine, and I was really happy with it. I, you know, they you record twenty minutes, seven goes out on the show, so it's they really cut it down. But I was happy with the cut, and people seem to enjoy it. It's actually the only time that I've never got any shit on Twitter when I've been on telly. I didn't get one piece of negativity. People said to me, "Don't go on Twitter the night that it goes out, just in case." And so the next day I looked, and I was like, "Not one bit of your shit." I mean, I've had your shit before, sure. But for my Apollo set, I didn't get a bit of it, which was lovely. And the shit that you're getting, is it because you're a woman? Because you're gay? Because what, why, why a do you... A little bit of column A, a little bit of column <laughs> A. Um, yeah, I mean, some people don't like the kind of stand-up I do. That's cool. I mean, there's no need to let me know. Just stop watching. Um, uh, but some people, yes, yeah, some people don't like funny women. And some people don't like the gays. I mean, I'll get a bit of, like, you're going to burn in hell. You just get. You just have to take that in your stride. That's oh, just that's a, just repent now. God, I wouldn't even have imagined you would get. I that. think he's that fine is... with it. <laughs> <laughs> if he exists, but yeah, it's um, that's a different thing. That's like a weird thing. Of I did a show last year, which I really liked as well. Actually, that was about being trolled by this one guy who created thirteen different Twitter accounts. And I always knew it was him because it was Skeletor's face. Um, so it had the same avatar and slightly different wording of who, of the name, but kept, I would block him. He would create a new, I mean, he must have had to create new email addresses. Like he'd go to the trouble of just to tell me that I was disgusting, that what I was putting in front of children was wrong, that I was dangerous, that because people like me were ruining the world, that's why the world's falling apart because of gay marriage. I mean, I think it might have some other things, but um, there might be some other reasons for that, but that takes it out of you. That takes it out of you. You know, all of the plus things of being like, like I was saying earlier about people that come to my show, people that feel heard, that's lovely. The downside is that there are people that, you know, there are senators in Congress in America who genuinely think it would be better if they killed all gay people. If there was a coal, you know, the, the deputy president of America, you know, Donald Trump once joked about Mike Pence, well, he wants to hang all the gays anyway. And then they both laughed. And, you know, as a gay person, you can, you know, shrug that off. But it does slightly knock away at your soul and go. There are a lot of people that think that I'm that I need therapy to get out of this, you know, like. Uh, I've got a friend that's making a documentary at the moment about the fact that gay conversion therapy happens in London every week. Every week. It feels like a very American thing, but it's happening in the UK as well. Like, homophobia is still alive and well. Not, you know, it's not nearly as bad as it used to be, but it's interesting. I did Richard Herring's podcast, and in it I spoke 
a little bit about being gay and someone messaged me being like, what the fuck do you always have to keep on about being gay? Homophobia doesn't happen anymore. So the fact that you felt the need to tell me that means that homophobia is happening because I'm just telling you about my life. I'm just telling you about what I experience and what I have to experience. And so that's the thing that it's the lovely thing to be like, to be able to feel like you're a voice and to be able to feel like you're saying the right things or you're saying the things that you wish that you had heard. You know, like, I wish a teacher at school had told me it was okay to be gay. I would have saved thousands in therapy. You know, that's why that LGBT inclusion thing is so important now. But, you know, there will always be someone that, not hopefully not always, but there often is someone that now, because I am talking about this in a very public way, um, that just think that I'm, you know, a piece of shit. I think it's a choice and think that it's... And that is the thing that is, I'd say, the hardest. And when people make it very personal. Like, you know, people like you shouldn't have children. When you talk about spending thousands on therapy, (laughs) does it complicate what is all... I mean, all mental health is complicated. Mm. But presumably one's sexuality and one's apprehension of one's sexuality further confuses like were you depressed about I mean what talk to me oh, well, talk I'm to just, me about therapy talk to I'm me just, about mental health I'm and... an anxious person so I've always been a worrier but I think that comes from the fact that when I was 13 or 12 or 13 I realized I was gay and I think that's where my anxiety started because my fear was if anyone finds out about this they'll hate you and so I just had this massive secret. And it was seven years until I came out. I came out when I was 20. And there were boyfriends in that time. And there were, you know, I tried to have relationships with guys because I was so desperate not to be gay. I really didn't want to be gay. I don't, I think very few people realise they're gay. Maybe less so now because it feels like a more positive world for gay people, certainly for younger people. But I went, the day that I realised I was gay, or, you know, it wasn't necessarily a day, but when I was like, oh, I think I'm definitely like that, I remember thinking I wish I could be anybody else in the world. And I'd sit at school thinking, I wish I was her. I wish I was her. They don't have to deal with this. I wish I was them. I wish it was them. And I think, and I guess that's where a lot of my anxiety started, that I that I was terrified that people would find out I was gay. Terrified. And part of it is because there was no gay women for me to look at on television to think I'm normal. And I guess that's why I've always been so openly out. And I'm not trying to be a fucking hero and I'm not trying to, like, be a... a, a, It's just saying people like us exist. And also I'm really funny and maybe you're like me and straight people like me and I'm not this weird idea of what a gay person is, I'm just a person. But I think that that's really... It was a really hard thing for me, which is a strange thing now because I am so open about my sexuality. But I hated that I was gay. I was really ashamed. I really hated every part of who I was. It's why I started doing acting, so I could just pretend to be somebody else for a few hours. I was desperate to be like my female cousins, who I'm really close to, who were all, in my head, normal. And, um, you know, I guess it's cliched in some ways, but... I always made people laugh. That was my way of dealing with it, by being stupid. That way I wouldn't... You know, I'd be stupid to the boys at school rather than trying to kiss them. I'd do something, like, mad 
or I'd be really naughty or I'd like climb on the top of the school and run across the roof of the school and do really stupid things and be, oh my God, yes, Susie's funny. And then no one would see that I was gay because I was being funny. And then if you're funny, you get picked on less and people won't be thinking, hmm, why is she a bit weird like that? Is there is there any part of your current practice as a comic which you feel is still defined by the kids you knew at school and your feelings about them? One of my preconceptions is always like, I every time I have a really good gig, a tiny part of me is thinking... Oh, well done, Stu. You are continuing to prove something to some children that no longer exist. <laughs> yeah, I, mean? I think that, you know, I mean, I think my desire to be liked, I mean, I definitely have a lot less of that on stage now. And I'm a lot more comfortable in the fact that, like, some people like, some people don't. That's totally fine. But certainly in the first sort of six, seven years of stand up, I was desperate for the crowd to like me. Like me, like me, laugh, laugh, clap, clap make reassure me that that you like me so it doesn't feel like school i'm just gonna sit with that for a minute <laughs> yeah and that that is and i think that's why i hate being viewed, judged by comics uh, by it not comics sorry critics yeah because i'm like i find it difficult at the festival so i don't read reviews i just know the stars but i need to know the stars because people are like why don't you just not look at all like Oh, what I will say about myself, what I can imagine someone writing about me is so much worse than what any critic will write. That I can make up like a story in my head of like all these terrible things about myself, which aren't true. But, you know, I can do that. And I'm sure like I'm sure people have said that to you before on the podcast. But it's it is that sort of. um, Yeah, desire to be liked, which is. A strange thing because a lot of comedians have it and it is so abhorrent to an audience and, and it's and, it's, and it's, it interferes it's an obstacle in the way of, in the way of creativity 100% you I remember in your I remember seeing the branding for for a for some of your shows maybe three and four years ago uh-huh. and I felt like you were experimenting with your positioning yeah 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 I talked a lot about class yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the show that was like my, the first show where I was being me on stage was called Common. And it was like an investigation into my working class family, for want of a better word. And I'm from a very working class family. It's a weird thing because I've got a bit of, I'm like, I'm not, I don't sound super working class. Portsmouth is a really weird accent. That's a mixture. Of, <laughs> yeah, right. It's a mixture of Devon and Cockney. Yeah, yeah, so the, yeah, yeah. The, Bang on. So the, the vowels are really weird. So it doesn't necessarily read is really common. Sure. But the show is about the fact that no one in my family has been to uni, not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, everyone's a bricklayer, a labourer, um, a roofer, hairdresser, works in a shop. My dad buys and sells horses um, and lorries and was a long-distance lorry driver for all of my childhood. And um, I wanted to write a show about that because I realised that I was not surrounded by, but I was with a lot of people that had been to Oxbridge or that had been to a university and had this, already felt like they had this sort of status in the world, whereas I always felt like I I didn't, I didn't quite know where I belonged. And so that was the first show, was me really talking about my family. And it's the, I all of a sudden started writing really funny stuff because I stopped trying to be a different type of comedian. I just spoke about what I knew. So that show was common, and I did that 
in the five pound fringe or the pay what you want fringe. And I sort of gathered a little audience that really liked me. And after the first week, it was selling out or there would be queues of people paying what they want. And it was the best fringe I'd ever had. I got really good reviews. I was getting four stars and I was just, I could like, you know, I was someone that had stars on their poster and I'd never had that before. And um, it was very nerve wracking, but I loved it. And then the next year I came back and did a show called Keeping It Classy. And that was about the fact that I live in a middle class world and I'm probably middle class now, but I still have a very working class family. And who are we when we straddle two worlds when we pretend to be someone to our family and then we pretend to be someone slightly different and then who does that mean that we are if we're always pretending to be someone different and that show I then filmed for live from the BBC and so that's a lot of the stand-up that's out there in the world that people can watch me doing is from that show and then last year I sort of took on um my mental health I wanted to talk about anxiety um and um I, I really enjoyed that show. And, and that show is about the fact that a lot of my anxiety comes from the lack of representation of gay people in the media or gay women specifically in the media. And um, then this year I was like, I feel like I've done it. <laughs> I feel like, what else have I got to say? What else have I got to say? And then I was like, oh, I'm happy. And then, honestly, my first thought was... Oh God! Oh shit! Yeah, <laughs> terrible, terrible. I've got a woman. I've met a woman that I loved bits. Uh, we've got a nice life. We've got. I get to do what I love for a job, and every, all of my success has come from me going. Oh, I don't know. Oh, things have gone wrong. Oh God! Like uh, keeping it classy was a lot about um, me having my heart broken and feeling like I had to start again as a person because my heart was broken so into such smithereens that I couldn't quite work out who I was anymore without that relationship. And uh, the week that, that, that the breakup happened, my nan also died and it was this weird thing and it was probably the best stand-up I'd have ever written. And then this year I was like, oh, God, I'm happy. Does that mean I'm not funny? And then I thought, well, that's, that's a show. Um, I'm not sure what the question was, but that's the answer. How are you feeling about the next five years of shows in terms of subject matter? I don't know. I'm not coming back to Edinburgh next year. I feel creatively, I feel like I've said, I've done four years on the bounce and I feel like that's about my limit for um, shows. So I'll have a little break. I'll tour this show for a bit, hopefully for like a year and a bit. And um, then I'll not necessarily have a little break from stand-up. I don't know, like, I mean, I talk about it in the show. I'm really hoping that... um, that Alice and I adopt. I feel like there'll be things to say about that. I feel like that's a story that's not heard a lot. There are, you know, there are some people that are talking about that sort of thing, but um, certainly something that I, I wish there was more stuff out there about people that are adoptive families and that, you know, you've really got a hunt to find books about people that have adopted. Like I'm reading everything at the minute and you do have to really seek it out. And so it'd be lovely to be able to put something out there in the world about what that experience is like. Um, but I don't know, presumably things will happen and I'll write about them. Does that, is there an element where you're sort of thinking ahead and going, oh, if I talk about an adoption journey, then I've made the decision to tell my child that they're adopted? Oh, it's just given that you tell them now. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, like also, yeah, like, so you have like quite a lot of therapy when you begin talking about whether you're going to adopt. Um, and it's very much from you know, a baby from three years old. Adoption is like a word that you use all of the time so that it feels very normal in your home. 
That's nice. Yeah. Okay. So um, maybe I, I'm certainly not thinking like, oh, great, I'll do a show about adoption. But I just mean whatever. Maybe Alice and I won't adopt. Maybe we'll decide not to have children. Maybe who knows what will happen. I mean, I think that that's the, the road that we're going down. But I guess whatever's happening in my life, that'll be what I'm talking about. Because I think there's sort of two types of comics, which are people that sort of feel what's going on around them and tell you how they feel, or they observe what's going on about them and tell you what they observe. And I'm definitely a feeler. That's really well put. That absolutely. My next question was going to be about, because the the base of the spider diagram is always what's happened to me. Mm. And I'm the same. Yeah. Deep down, I try sometimes to write it out there. What's happening to them? I can't fucking write it. No, it's not. That's not not how my aerials work. No, and that's the thing. That's what I was struggling with when I was first starting out. And I think what a lot of people do, what, which, which one of these am I? You know, and, then, and often you'll watch a newer act and they'll sort of do a bit of observation and then a bit of me and then a bit of... And sometimes you can package it together and it will work. But for me, I'm definitely like a feeler. Like, this is how I feel. This is what happened to me. This is what this did to me. And so I guess wherever I am in my life, it'll be, it'll be me talking about that. But I feel like... This show is a really great example of where I am right now. And I would just hope to write another show like that. Last question. Yes. If you were to review yourself. Oh, God. Honestly. What if I had to, like, review you had my to review, show that I'm doing now? Uh, you know yourself as a comic. So let's say a club set. The type, just kind of okay. the type of comic that you are. If you were to critically review yourself and go, these are her strengths, these are her, these are her weaknesses. Okay. Um, and and there's, no, there's no right way of doing this, no, but I'm interested in, in what it reveals the way you see yourself, so, for yeah. good or bad. Um, she brings, like, everything onto stage with her. There's nothing that, I, there's nothing that I'm scared of talking about. Um, her physicalities are really good. Her voices and accents or um, characterizations are very funny. Um... She's not reinventing the wheel, but she's doing what she does very well. Thanks, man. <laughs> so that was Susie Ruffle. What a joy. I'm so excited by her and for her. And uh, I can't wait to see what she does next. So if you're at the festival, go and see her. And if you're not at the festival, but you're in the UK, please get on her website, join her mailing list or follow her Twitter on whatever things they are. You can find it as fast as I can and um, and see her on tour later this year. So um, thank you once again to Susie. Uh, thank you to my flatmates at Edinburgh for getting out of the room and letting me get on with it. And thank you to Jake Crossland for logging the episode. Uh, Rob Smoutham was the music the editor, as always, uh, producer was Nathan Wood, and the podcast consultant was Peter Dobbing. No post amble, just a quick rundown of some things that have absolutely blown me away at the festival. If you are there, or if you can see them in some form, or research them, or see them online, John Kearns, Desiree Birch, Police Cops have done it again. Badass be thy name. Their their third show is absolutely superb, a standalone show. Um, I've also been in love with Rob Orson's work, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, the Cagouls I've really enjoyed, and uh, Sarah Barron is my hot tip for another breakout successful comedy lady. Loads more stuff to see. Oh, Sophie Hagen's show was great as well. I mean, I could be here all day. No postamble, uh, too much to do. I will get back to talking at you properly 
yeah, at, I mean, literally at, very soon. If you haven't got tickets for Primer yet and you're intending to see it, better get in quick. Speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.